So here we are with the second episode of the In the Gap podcast. I remain Jason Tabris. Uh, when I started the show, the idea was to talk to cool people about baseball and whatever comes up in a long-form conversation, and we're continuing to live up to that well-crafted tagline uh, in this episode. Talking with Greg Proops. You know Greg from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Uh, you know him from his voice work with Bob the Builder, Star Wars Phantom Menace. Uh, he's, a, he's a touring comedian. He tours with... Uh, Ryan Stiles, also from Whose Line Is It Anyway, and for, with uh, Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall, pops in from time to time. Chip Esten uh, from Nashville, which I love. I love Nashville. I don't know why I love Nashville. I don't love country music, nor do I love melodrama, but I love Nashville. Anyway, uh, Greg Proops also does podcast, The Proopcast. Uh, he is a, a phenomenal follow on Twitter. I highly recommend that, at Greg Proops. Uh, and again, a stand-up comedian. I'm actually going to uh, watch uh, and watch his... Uh, He's doing a Zoom stand-up comedy performance uh, coming up, and uh, I'm really curious to see how that works. I've talked to some comics uh, at the day job, and uh, you know, there's definitely some hesitance about how to work in this environment with COVID and everything going on. Where you know, uh, as as uh, George Wallace was saying in uh, when he was talking to Roy Wood uh, on uh, Roy Wood's YouTube show, uh, you know, people are and I'm paraphrasing here. But everyone is, you know, opening their mouth, laughing, and just, you know, basically throwing their, their you know, their uh, their respiratory droplets at you when you're on a stage. And, you know, uh, the Zoom thing is an option, a digital socially distanced option. Uh, so I'm curious to see how that is just as a comedy fan. But also just really, you know, jazzed about seeing great groups do stand-up comedy. Uh, I was really psyched uh, to talk to him about baseball. And he absolutely delivers. Uh, we talked about... The state of the game right now, it's, it's you know, uh, especially uh, with these trying times with COVID and with, with the peaceful protests and everything going on, uh, people, you know, it's there's debates about if you need distractions, if you want distractions. Baseball is a great distraction for people, but it's not there right now. Uh, and uh, Greg Cruz is fine with that uh, because of the safety concerns. He's not fine with the owners and kind of the way they're approaching it, and I agree with him on that. So we have a really great conversation about that. Uh, also talk about his work with the Negro League Museum, uh, and also how the Baseball uh, Hall of Fame uh, does and doesn't uh, kind of live up to its charge. Uh, again, a lot of interesting stuff. Greg is a, a scholar of the game. He's written about it. Uh, he's done documentaries about it. He's a, a longtime San Francisco Giants fan. Uh, and uh, again, it's just a really interesting perspective, a really cool guy who has a lot to say about, about baseball. And I really am, just, again, I'm going to shut up so you can listen to it now. Uh, but uh, I'll be back after the show to do the plugs and, and say the things that I have to say. But anyway, here's Greg Proops. How does the Zoom comedy show work? It works uncommonly well. Steve Hofstetter and um, Ben Glebe were already doing, um, you know, the digital thing before the world ended. And uh, Ben had already done like a whole live set on Facebook and Hofstetter already had all the, you know, kind of machinery in place, as it were technology and so when um when we went into lockdown they just immediately jumped in um, and started asking people and luckily i'm friends with ben and he asked me to do it so you like you go on they give you a code and it's like a zoom meeting or whatever but you turn your mic on so we can hear you laugh i can see it all y'all uh you know by scrolling down you see everybody in the audience everybody's at home people have got their dogs and they're smoking weed or you know drinking whatever and um 
you, they can hear you and you can hear them. So the, the ambiance is uh, hilariously, you know, plague oriented because we're all on our own individual cameras, but we can, um, we can communicate with each other and, and, and the, the feeling of a comedy show is there, I think. You know, we have an opener and a middle and all that. And uh, I mean, an opener, uh, uh, yeah, my stand up show, I think we have. I had two last time, but uh, Ben and I had done a couple where we just riffed for an hour, and um, that was really fun too. And then I did my podcast the night of the first night of the police rides two weeks ago, um, and that was pretty wild because it was kind of hard to focus that night. They were, <laughs> yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, they were, the police were tear gassing people like near my house. You know. Um, anyway, uh, so it's immediate. It's immediate. You know. That I imagine. I imagine it's, I mean, God, it's, it's got to be so weird to, to even try to be funny in, in times like these. Kind of, How do you kind of reconcile that? Well, my whole job is to distract people. I mean, don't you hate it when you lose your joint? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I uh, put it down, you know, and the next thing you know, you can't find it again. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's weird. Uh, that you asked, Jace, because May, uh, it was real pound, uh, you know, I think like 300 people turned up for the first stand-up show I did. And, uh, you know, we've been locked down in some places for over a month at that point, maybe a month and a half, you know. And um, it felt like literally almost anything you could say made people cry laughing because people were just so scared and freaked, you know, after the first month. And uh, that's kind of the beauty of this show is, like, the last one, too, that Ben and I did together, we were basically, like, surreal sketch fests. We would just start, I would just start a riff, or she'd start a riff, and then all of a sudden there's props, you know, like, things come on the camera. And Ben said it in another interview that he did with Alyssa Blanc or somebody, he said, the thing that we all eschewed, all the cerebral comedians, like me and him and, you know, that we're political and we do caustic satire and all that jazz, all of a sudden we're prop comics because of the media moment. You know, yeah. next thing you know, next thing you know, but, all right, I'm Mr. Book or whatever, and people are crying <laughs> laughing, you know. And it's just because I think slapstick always works. I've always I subscribe to that. Um, I mean, I'm in a comedy group as well with Ryan Stiles and everybody. And, you know, we do vaudeville, you know. Yeah. We, we, we lay on top of each other. We do pratfalls and we sing funny songs. I mean, it's as, it's as much like vaudeville as you're going to get. And um, so I think both things work. You know, the, the this week I intend on riffing on what's been going on a little more because um, I think people want the point's been turned a little. You know what I mean? Yeah. The first two the first two months it was simply release from containment, and now that. Uh, you know, the world caught fire two weeks ago, 14, how many days is it now, 16? What did it start with? May 26th, right, the night after the murder. Um, we're all on this amped up agenda now, I think, you know. So I think people wanted me to respond a little bit to that, too. And make fun of rednecks, which is something I do constantly. Mm -hmm. Don't, no, no harm in that. Um, yeah. It's good for yeah. No, absolutely. Um, how pissed are you that baseball is failing right now to be a distraction? Mm. What I'm pissed at is what I'm always pissed at, Jace, which is I think the owners 
are indescribably greedy. And I think that in their hearts, they don't like baseball very much. They don't care. Um, when you and I were kids, nothing was more important than I'm, you're, you're young. So I'm guessing when you were a kid, it was like, I don't know, uh, uh, Freddy Sanchez. And <laughs> I don't know. No, 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 I'm, I'm, I, I appreciate that. This must be a terrible connection because I'm, uh, I'm so like, we're talking, uh, like 90, like early nineties. I was a Yankees fan when I was a kid. So like the really bad, like nineties Yankees with like Mattingly and like Mel Hall and, Louis Polonia, a bunch of guys who got arrested. So, you know, yeah. 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 Polonia made one of the worst throws in postseason that I've ever seen anyone make. Just tiny. If I remember correctly, he had tiny arms. Uh, And I think that's, that was part of it because he had no arm strength whatsoever. I do remember that. I think it was, it might have been the 2000. Was he on the 2000 A's or the 2001 A's? He made a a rainbow trout throw from left field. That just went like this. It was like one a throw I would have made in Little League. Just it <laughs> had nothing on it. It was high in the air. It took a this was his cutoff throw, by the way. Yeah. And it was just like, wow, dude, you really have a shitty arm. I mean, I was a Brett Butler fan in the eighties when he played for the Giants. Mm. And he used to list himself as five foot ten. Now I'd stood next to the man and he was five foot seven. And uh although he was an okay base runner, he was fast. Uh and he had a good batting average and he walked a lot. And he also bungeed for about 20 biscuits a year, which was oh, yeah, pretty wild. Yeah. Nope. Um, his arm was bloody awful. So he made up for it by, you know, getting the ball. But yeah, they, well, I can't remember what your original question was. Oh, I'm pissed I am. The, yeah. I'm not mad that um, uh, we're not having a season because I think it's far too dangerous. I think that the, the thing to do would be what the NBA is doing. But then the NBA is an enlightened league because... Their commissioner has to respond to a constituency of over 90% um, black people on the field, on the court. Uh, uh, Silver said that they don't even have to go back if they don't want to, and that they won't be docked, and it's not a boycott. You know what I mean? He gave them the option to play or not. Uh, and, of course, as you know, now there's a big thing going on in the NBA where um, players are talking about simply boycotting these politics. Right? Yeah. They, baseball made this unbelievable bullshit move to uh, try to get the players down on the fee, which is no fault of the players, by the way. Um, and uh, then Manfred said, what, five days ago, it was 100% certain we were having a season, and then had to walk that shit back when the entirety of the argument of why the owners don't want to do this is the players wouldn't sign a waiver stating that they wouldn't sue them afterward for lost wages. Can you believe this? That's why. And now a bunch of guys are tested positive for COVID. Players and people in front offices. They are not telling us who, but that's the news. And uh, wanting to put 50,000 people in a stadium, or even entertaining that notion, is lunacy right now. It's lunacy. And uh, you saw what they did in Korea. You know, they, they did a form of how it could return. The difference is Korea's flattened the curve and tried to manhandle this. And we've got this half-fast, you know, uh, Russian trader thing that we're doing where there's no plan and no spars. So it's logically even talk about doing this unless you can make it safe for the players, one, because they're being paid to do this. It's their job. And you can't ask someone to walk into their job and die um, like we do with everybody else. Yeah, I was going to say, meatpacking plants and all those things. Yeah, we seem to have a, that seems to be yeah. a new American way, apparently. But 
Yeah, we knew for all the people in the meat plants, they'd had over 80 deaths. Uh, and then they said it was because there was a shortage of meat and they had to work everybody. And then it was revealed today that um, they were selling tons and tons of pork to China. So, you know, but the meatpacking owners have the same mentality as the baseball owners, which is squeeze these guys as hard as you can. Not one owner couldn't afford to pay everyone's salary that works at the ball yard for the whole season right now. And I mean, everybody from the ticket taker to the peanut vendor to the people who cook the hamburgers to the people who clean the bathrooms, all of them, all of the minor leaguers in every strata of the minor leagues and every single ball player and still not really lose any money. They would only be paying out hundreds of millions of dollars. They're billionaires. Every franchise is worth over a billion dollars. All of them. So, and none of them pay any taxes. They don't. They didn't any, none of them built their own baseball parks. You know, you notice none of the parks are called like, a, a, you know, Griffith Stadium or whatever, because the, the owners get the towns, they wrestle the towns down and make the taxpayers basically float a bond so they can pay for their own stadium. So they're always towns in, that are now cities that are now going bankrupt or you know running the risk of running bankrupt with COVID, not having the money because of the stadium. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Thomas Boswell, who I consider uh, a tremendous baseball mind, and somebody who's followed the game, he's probably like the you know one of the deans of the living baseball writers. Who had a column in the Washington Post yesterday that just said this whole thing that they're going to go broken ship is just patently untrue. It's a it's a huge lie and it's an insult because. And stop talking about all the players being millionaires. He mentions a couple cats on the Nationals who were 26 and 27, and I can't remember their names, but they're in the lineup last year. And they weren't up to getting what they should be getting in the big leagues because, as you know, uh, like, for instance, the Cubs did with what's his name a couple of years ago when he came That's up to Brian. the Yeah, they, they, they stuff you so that they don't have to pay you your full fee the first year, right? And then now you're a little older. Now you're 25. And when you're 26 and 27, you're still on the upswing of your baseball career, but you're not at the beginning anymore. You know what I mean? And they're not making millions of dollars. They made more money by winning the World Series. Their share of the World Series money was as much as they make in a year. So that's how important winning the championship or going to the championship was for those players. And I really hate the argument that fans put out where they go, it's a bunch of millionaires arguing with a bunch of billionaires. It's like, look, dude, if I told you your career might be seven years long, and one of the 600 people in the world who did something better than everyone else at a level that no one else can do it, wouldn't you argue that you should be allowed to, in the free market, negotiate for however much money you can get? Especially from people who are, who are in the black before they open the gate. Marvin Miller said it in 1966. He, he sued them to get to look at the books when they started the Players Association. And he was the lawyer they wanted because he negotiated it for the United Farm Workers in California and all over the West. And he was an expert at identifying undervalued labor, if you follow me on this. And he said that before, the, before they opened the doors on opening day, all the teams in the 60s were already well into profit from their TV deals. And those are 60s TV deals, not the yeah, kind not of... billion-dollar, own-your-own-network yeah. kind of stuff right now, yeah. I mean, like, you're a Yankees fan. How much is their deal? You know what I mean? They could field 25 teams of nothing but all-stars for the money that they're getting from their TV revenue. In Los Angeles, Mark Water or whatever his name is, who owns the, is the chief of the Dodgers, took the Dodgers off um, regular television like five years ago. And Bill Plaschke, who writes here in Los Angeles, was a superb sports writer for the Times, 
wrote an open letter today to Artie Moreno and him and said, you know what? You took the, you took the team off TV five years ago. You know, you don't have to pay to see them now. You have to pay to see the Dodgers. They used to put like 40, 50 Dodger games a year on uh, um, Channel 11. You know? So was this something you'd do when the Giants come to town? I'd watch them play the Dodgers, right, on TV. Uh, because and now, literally the best chance the Dodgers have to win a championship this year. And again, the greed, the greed, you don't want to pay. And he said the same thing to Artie Moreno. He goes, you got the best player in the world on your team. And you're going to let him blow a whole year of his career because you just don't want to pay. So that's why, that's how I feel about it, Jace. It's curious because, you know, you mentioned the NBA and the comparison between the NBA and, and baseball players. Politically, basketball players are so much more vocal, uh, so much more uh, engaged in what's going on uh, in their communities and, 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 and speaking out about issues that are, that are affecting yeah. us all. Baseball players often, not always, but often, uh, are pretty silent. As someone who is politically you're you're on the left you're you're vocal uh you're 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 engaged how how do you kind of reconcile that of watching these players who are a lot of times you know republicans and kind of you know or either republican or quiet uh, about things going on how do how do you kind of deal with that because I, I find myself questioning that more and more as i watch baseball as i get older and more uh i don't know set my political ways i guess i agree with you um i i, I felt the same way when i was a kid and when i was a teenager I didn't consider the, what the devil's that? I've never seen a bird like that in my own moment. Oh, white stripes across their wings? What sure, bird not a drone, right? Well, yeah, I believe, I hope it's a bird. If it's a drone, it's a very effective one. Um, uh, I became a little more aware of the politics. Uh, you know, as you get older, you realize uh, the front offices don't have any people of color. The front offices don't have any women. Um, they don't let... Um, they don't let people of color manage that much. Hmm. What are there, two black managers in the bigs this year? Robertson Baker, is it? Yeah, I think. And they give Baker the championship team, right? And he doesn't get to manage because they cancel the bloody thing. Um, Ray Ratto, um, who's a brilliant sports writer, I, 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 I know Ray. Uh, I keep quoting the sports writers, but they, they follow the game, you know. Uh, he said to me in the 80s, you go into the clubhouse, even in the Giants, and everybody's watching Rush Limbaugh and shit. Mm-hmm. He was like, that's the way it is. He's like, it's a real rednecky sport, man. And uh, from the top down, and I always believe it was, um, obviously, uh, uh, this is different now because I've, I've been following a lot of the major league ball players, especially the Latin, Latinx, and black ones. And they're way more vocal this year. There's been a lot more discussion about it. Even the Negro League. Uh, uh, and by the way, the president of the uh, Negro League Museum, Bob Kendrick, gets his birthday today. And, um, yeah, it's on Twitter. Twitter. There's a reason why I'm angry about the season. This COVID fucking thing. I've hosted the Negro League Museum uh, Hall of Game Awards for the last three years. Bob's asked me to do it. And... You get to meet all the ballplayers and hang out with them and eat barbecue and have a big dinner. And then there's this awards thing and there's jazz and it is just. And then we drink after with the ballplayers. It's great. You'd love it. And uh, last year was Eric Davis, uh, Dave Parker, Dave Stewart, um, Sharon Robinson, Jackie's daughter, and uh, and Rachel's daughter. And uh, um, I'm missing one. Uh, 
Fred McGriff. Mm. So this is the kind of this is the kind of guest he gets. He gives these guys an award, you know, for bringing excellence to the game. It has nothing to do with the Hall of Fame. It's all about representing the spirit and the tenacity and of the Nikolai players. And to a person last year, uh, they were doing their opening thing in the afternoon where they were handing out shirts and whatnot. And they got to Sharon Robinson, who's been an activist and an educator her whole life, as her mother was and as her father was. Uh, he was also a great athlete, but as you know, Jackie was a very vocal activist, mm-hmm. speaking of ball players who didn't keep quiet. Aaron, by the way, a Republican for a time. Mm. Yeah, Nixon supporter. Supported Nixon, and then he was yeah. really mad that Nixon was so right-wing. So um, she said, what are all of you doing for children? That was her question of the other ball players there. And all of them, to a person, have charities that they worked on. Dave Stewart and his wife um, help uh, people who are imprisoned by the government, you know, the, the children that have been caged or not. And all of them are extraordinary people. So I think there's a lot of ball players who are active. And I think we find out horribly that there's a lot of Aubrey Huffs and um, mm. uh, um, who's the other, you know, Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling, yeah. There's a lot of that. And they're basically like Nazis. Uh, they were able to work within the system when they played because it's a team sport and that's what you do. And I'm sure they were used to working with Latin and black people their whole careers as ball players. There was nothing they could do about that. But then comes the time when they finally express themselves. And as we say uh, in baseball, should be their ass. And uh, it's disappointing. But I think I think it's better this year. I think more players are speaking out. I think this the conditions of what they're having to face are forcing them to actually disagree and uh, state their case a little bit. You know, normally I think they would have been. The other thing is, Jace, the press isn't characterizing this as a walkout. You know, every time there's been um, the owners close the doors, they they um, characterize the narrative as the players struck. Right. When the owners closed the doors in 94, that was an owner-led closing of baseball. The reason why we didn't have a World Series, the reason why there was no legit champ that year, the reason why children cried and the state of baseball was fucked in 1994. I was one of them. I was one of those kids. 94 Yankees were, yeah, that was probably the height of my baseball fandom. So, yeah. 94 Expos, man. Yeah. We had one of the great teams with Pedro Martinez. Um, So, it's always their fault. They've... you know, I wrote a book, and I had a lot, a lot of too, way too much baseball on it. But one of the things I say in the book is, I, want, I make a list of everything the owners weren't for in the history of the game. Um, they weren't for uh, um, numbers on the back of the uniforms. They weren't for radio. Excuse me. They were decidedly not for having black people play. They were happy to sell black people tickets and then put them way down the left field line behind a screen. Um, they were against television. They were against, uh, uh, they literally thought all the things that had made baseball popular for a hundred years, which is radio and television, they didn't want to do it because they thought it was giving it away. Mm. Instead of spreading the word, the Dodgers here in town, it's a scandal, a scandal, as we say in LA, because the Latin kids are the backbone of the Dodger fans down here. You know, when you go to the ballpark and you sit down the line, it's all Latin families, and they know fucking everything, you know? 
The Dodger Nation is, as you know, as they're known down here, the Azul. The, the blue. And um, they care, man. So I interviewed Donald Fair, who was the player and rap in the 90s. Yeah. And he was a fearsome dude, as you recall. Who was vilified? I remember when I was a kid uh, hating him because he was like vilified by the press. You just, you felt like he was the villain of the whole thing when you come to realize, mm -hmm. no, that's not the case. It's just the narrative, I think, that gets uh, kind of put out there uh, hand in hand with the press, obviously. He was trying to get people to pension. He was trying to get yeah. the minimum raised. Uh, he was trying to get a little more health care for them. Um, you have to remember all this ball players or spoiled rich people stuff is a product in my lifetime my lifetime when the free agency was first tested uh um by kirk flood in 70 and he he was brutally buffered by baseball and they chucked him out like uh, colin kaepernick and then the mcnally then that went to an arbitrator donald sides and donald sides ruled against the owners that was the that was what began the era of players being able to negotiate for their own uh what they deserved, you know. Anyway, the, the, what I want to tell you about Donald Fair was he was an asshole in person, of course, but um, <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to the show. I'm certain he would agree that he, that he had a brusque style. Let me put it this way. He was briskly professional with me, and I got to ask him a bunch of questions. And one of the questions I said was, it was uh, 97 when I interviewed him. I said, last season, the two teams with the biggest payrolls won the World Series. And in 94... Um, when the season didn't finish, children cried and people weren't happy. And he went, I don't think children cried. And I went, <laughs> and I, went I do. I do. I go, I, uh, believe me, you know, uh, uh, people who um, are in nursing homes, people who are uh, shut in, uh, people who are disabled that can't get out, you know how much baseball means to them, man. Because, you know, it's a six months affair. And literally, you can listen to 162 games on the radio and probably watch 20 or 30 on TV if you got a package or an hour on your phone. It's a real, it's a, it's a passion for baseball fans. And when you're when you're eight, nine, ten, eleven, Jesus Christ, how important is it? You know, and these fuckers just don't care, man. I used to listen to every game when I was a kid. I used to focus on everything for four or five innings and now it's just on in the background and it's not necessarily a thing that I watch intently but it's, it's something that is so still so important because uh, it's just part of the kind of the landscape you know well I remember I lived in England for about five years in the 90s and I'd stay up till the middle of the night and watch the Cleveland World Series you know all those the Yankees Braves mm. I was trying to teach my road manager at the time about baseball first what was it the first game of that 96 Yankees uh Sixteen to two, fifteen to one, yeah. something like and, that. Yeah. Andrew, Andrew Jones. Yeah. yeah, Andrew Jones. And he goes, Andrew Jones hit homer. I think in his first two at bats. I and, think so. Yeah. And my my English advantage is like, oh, he's quite good, isn't he? <laughs> 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 I'm like, this is a little bit of a surprise, but yes, he's really good. It turns out that he's clutcher than the devil. Um, it, we were. I remember being at. Uh, we threw a picnic at our house. Uh, I mean, a cookout. I went to the garden center in England and I bought a Weber, a big green Weber and a bunch of briquettes. And they had this really weird, they didn't have like glider fluid, they had these weird English things to start it with. Anyway, so we would invite everybody over. There was a butcher store down the block and I would buy hamburger and I would make like 30 patties and we'd have everybody up for cookout like for 4th of July, which is, you know, the English don't celebrate it, but now 
how they do because of the food and everything. Like over the years, they've just absorbed all the American holidays, and people sometimes make turkeys on Thanksgiving, and sometimes <laughs> <laughs> it's on. They celebrate the Fourth oh, of really? July. Wow. It's hilarious. That's amazing. You get up in the morning, and the cooking shows are on in the morning, and they'll be like, "This is how you make a Fourth of July, uh, you know, weenie roast," and then on, you know, you take the hot dogs and you put them in it's it's fantastic to watch. So we would get all these hot dogs and 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 do something that no one in England did in those days, which we would rent. Um, garbage bins from the liquor store and fill them with ice and put beer on ice, cold beer. Because English people in those days really did drink warm beer all the time. Like you'd bring beer over to someone's house in England in those days and they would just sit on the counter and no one would put it in the fridge. And it was, you know, whatever. And um, so cold beers and hot dogs and hamburgers, right, on 4th of July. And of course the English people were going crazy, right? They'd never... Then do a cookout. We're playing, you know, funk music and we're eating potato chips and shit. And what my wife would make cookies and whatever. Or brownies, you know, brownies for the 4th of July or apple pie or something. And they lose their minds because they've never had a hot dog that was good. They've never had a barbecue hamburger with onions in it, you know, and shit. And I remember one of them, my friends, Josie, came up to me, who you know from whose line is it anyway? And she goes, What do we do now? Do we sing songs? And I said, <laughs> What would those songs be, I wonder? (laughs) I said to her, to tell you the truth, what we would be doing is we'd have the ball game on. I said, the backdrop to the 4th of July is the ball game. It's always a day game on the 4th of July. There's always, you know what I mean? Like, if there's one day there's going to be baseball, it is that fucking 4th of July. There's going to be a flyover, and there's going to be an honor guard, and there's going to be fucking, you know. That's baseball. Before the July is the apex of baseball. More as much as the All Star Game, which I find a dreary corporate affair. Yeah, sadly, yeah. Which uh, which is weird because I, I mean, again, when I was a kid, it was so. I think I didn't really play. Also, kind of helped kill the All Star Game uh, to some extent. Just it feels less special seeing certain players play against others. But uh, yeah, they don't really seem to have as much fun with it as I think they could. You know, what? I don't. I don't think things were better when I was little. I'm not that kind of old guy. Things are, even with all the madness in the Nazis now, um, we're acknowledging everyone's existence more and we're acknowledging everyone's feelings more. Definitely. And after the last two and a half weeks, I think more than ever, white people are forced to confront their whiteness, which is mm-hmm. a big, huge difference from when I was little. But the All-Star game was better when it didn't count, when there was no you know, point to it, when it was literally an exhibition game that they all suited up for. Because the great players always played really hard, like Willie Mays and Pete Rose. They didn't gold brick it at the All-Star game. They brought their game. Um, Reggie Jackson's home run off the light tower in the 71 All-Star game. Willie Mays was the only run scored in the 68 All-Star game. He got on first, he stole second, he went to third on something and scored on like a grounded on the right side. That was 1968 in a nutshell. You know what I mean? Um, but you know, the opposite of that... The opposite of that, and I agree with you, but then the opposite side of that, with the way things are now, I don't think you ever see, like, a moment that I remember and that a lot of people that are my age remember is, like, uh, Larry Walker turning his cap or turning his helmet around facing Randy Johnson in the All-Star game. That was awesome. Moments like that, which is a thing I don't think you see now either. Like, just, you don't see players that are kind of, you know, 
unguarded like that uh, in the All Star game because sometimes I worry they take it too seriously. Like it's not it's not about the it's not about the competitive edge of just you know of having bragging rights. It's about you know something else with the playoffs and you know home field advantage and stuff. So I think there's that's a difference too. I agree, and I think it takes the fun out of it when John Crook backed off of Randy Johnson in that one All Star yeah. game. It basically didn't even bother to swing at the last pitch. It just took a strike and ran away. Um, when uh, Barry Bonds picked up Torrey Hunter and carried him across the field, and what was that, 2007? Mm-hmm. Um, he just picked him up and threw him like he was a doll. Um, it, I think the fun is diminished because of, there's too much corporate responsibility. What are the owners going to say to you? What's your manager going to say to you if you fuck up in the All-Star game and it costs your league the, the home field? Yeah. You know, like, it's just way too important. Whereas, you'd see them... I don't know. I'll even go further. I was at the 84 All-Star game at Candlestick, which was uh, um, quite a good game. Um, Doc Gooden and Nando threw six straight strikeouts over two innings. And then in the eighth, Steve Cottle, who pitched for the A's, struck out three. So the side got struck out three times in that game. And it was a booming lineup. It was Eddie Murray and... Daryl Strawberry and Eric Davis. You know, this is 84. There was a lot of fucking... You know, Mike Schmidt was still fucking great then. You know what I mean? I mean, he won the MVP in 86. Like, the lineup was just crazy. And the pitching was crazy. And it was a lot of fun. And I remember Tim Raines, Joe for ball and lefty didn't get to it. And I remember thinking, if he caught that, we'd, they'd still show it every year. Mm-hmm. Because it was such a running dive into the corner. And he just didn't get to it. Um, Dale Murphy hit a homer. I think Straw hit a homer. Dale Murphy, remember Dale Murphy? Uh, oh, yeah. So it was a lot more colorful. Like, I remember being at that game, and the thing that excited me the most wasn't the game, which was great anyway, but watching them warm up. We went for BP and watched them take their feeling. And to see Straw out there with, like, Eddie Murray and shit, and they're all just, they were so tall and fucking great, you know, and they were goofing around and throwing the ball to each other and shit, and you were like, this is awesome. It's amazing how it's amazing how players even even now I'm so I'm six four I'm a big guy and I was at a autograph thing I saw Dave Winfield in person and he's not maybe he's two inches taller than me yeah still felt like a giant still felt like an absolute giant to me it's amazing just the 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 presence that uh, that that these guys have but no I I agree with you just in general yeah I don't I don't think that I think it's again it's hard to, to really compare eras. Uh, in terms of like a player to player basis and who's like a better player, more talented. There's so many different things going on and you can go yeah. all the way back to the start with that and going back to Babe Ruth and the Negro Leagues and what, you know, the talent level that he faced. And, but, um, yeah, there's, I don't know, there's an innocence that goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, knowing players kind of political prerogatives and, and being able to kind of still follow along with that. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I don't really have an answer for it or even a point to what I'm saying so much. It's just, you know, it, it is really an interesting thing to, you know, you kind of have to divorce yourself from reality, I think, a little bit more and try to kind of, you know, step in the shoes of when you were a kid with stuff like that. Um, I it's think a little so. harder. It's a little harder now because, again, with everything with the owners, like you said, knowing that they don't really care about what baseball means, you know, the fact that, you know, the, the, the uniqueness of it and the Americanness of it and being tied to things like 4th of July and the, the, uh, just the tradition of it. It's, it's clear that, that the owners, uh, do not care about that. So that's, that's also another thing. I think it's well, hard to look how they treated, uh, the cheating scandal from last year. The, mm-hmm. the Houston Astros owners, um, 
press conference was one of the great disasters in baseball history. He wouldn't admit that anything went wrong, and then he did admit that there was cheating, and then he said they were going to deal, and it was just the biggest pile of shit. It didn't address anything. He didn't honestly take on anything. Um, there were no repercussions because baseball polices itself. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't you say that in any other sport, like, oh, I don't know, bicycle racing, um, they took away all of Lance, Lance Armstrong's gold and gave it to the second-place person? Um wouldn't the Dodgers kind of deserve a consolation prize or something instead of a cold drink of fucking frosty bullshit? I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, what I'm saying is this, when there is evident cheating, like last year, um, there needs to be like a panel that's independent. That yeah, in any kind of, there's some kind of independence because, yeah, obviously Manfred is... is you, don't, you don't have Rob Manfred deal with this because Rob Manfred is as pliant as a Pekingese. Mm. You feed him a biscuit and he rolls it over, man. I mean, you know, he's just like all the other commissioners. Selig was the worst because he was one of the owners, so it was like Trump or whatever. It was like having someone who hates the industry run the industry. Pliant as a Pekingese is a great phrase. I... um that is a wonderful segue for something I did want to ask you. Um, you mentioned sports writers, uh, and I, I know I grew up reading, uh, going through the uh, the New York Daily News, New York Post, and Newsday every day, uh, back to front. Newsday, Long Island Newsday. It's still, in, yeah. I think it's still in circulation, but that was yeah. back in the day when it was still pushing into New York as well. Um, and Luke Pagan and all the, those greats, Peter Bessie. Right. Um, I'm curious if sports writer when you kind of hatched onto that and started reading sports writers, and also who like your announcer was when you were a kid, because you have such a, a wonderful flair for the language, and I'm curious if that's helped to develop it when you were younger. Yeah, that I was. I'm so old that the first games I listened to in the mid, probably the first games I listened to were like '66, '67. I was like six and seven years old, and Russ Hodges was still the Giants' um, go-to guy. He's, he did the first few innings. Then Lon Simmons would take over, and then they had a cat named Bill Thompson who did the seventh. Um, so I actually heard Russ Hodges call Willie Mays Helmers and say, bye-bye, baby, which was a, a real big thing in San Francisco because he had come from New York, you know, they kept him. And at one point he called, like, you know, almost every homer Willie'd ever hit, right, because he'd been there, you know, he was there from the beginning. Um, yeah. So Russ Hodges, you know, like you heard in the call, the famous, uh, the Giants from the Pennant, the Giants from the Pennant. He was emotional in the total homer, which made him great. Mm-hmm. It is, honestly. <laughs> I grew really up with, with I grew up, uh, listening to Phil Rizzuto, who was yeah. in that same, in that same thing and a great storyteller. That it was a three man booth, Bobby Mercer, Phil Rizzuto, yeah. and Tom Seaver. Yeah. And, uh, for a good, like, three or four years when I was a kid, uh, that and then Michael Kay and John Sterling on the radio, and I used to actually prefer the radio when I was a kid, uh, but, um, those guys were just tremendous, uh, storytellers, and just really, again, I think, helped to activate, uh, my That's interest in language and storytelling. Yeah, it was. And honestly... No, it was, and and honestly, just a, an embarrassment of riches because then they had the uh, the cable package with Tony Kubek, who was another uh, genius, and Dwayne Stats, who still I think does Rays games. Uh, so really, just great great announcing teams back uh, back then. Uh, but yeah, so w- I mean, would you say that that, that kind of helped to develop your your fire for language and storytelling? Oh yeah, we used to um, totally copy Lon Simmons and then Russ Hodges. It's at the end of three. No runs, no hits, no errors. Going into the top of the fourth, Giants two, Dodgers nothing. 
and they're going to do the other uh, the lineups. And then when I was little, uh, at the old candlestick that had the open, it was open to right field, they hadn't closed it yet. And McCarthy would hit home runs like into the parking lot and shit. Um, the PA announcer gave the lineups, right? His name was Jeff Carter. And then he sang the national anthem every day. You know, like how they have bring someone in every day now, which is yeah, better. They bring yeah. in kids and stuff. It's great. Yeah. But Jeff Carter would go, ladies and gentlemen, will you please rise for the singing of the national anthem? We knock it up. And he go, oh, say, can you? <laughs> he would just knock it out every day. And then <laughs> uh, his voice was great because he'd go, number 25, Bobby Barnes. <laughs> Uh, and then now I think the Giants announcers are superb. Uh, uh, Mike Kruko, Dwayne Kuiper, and um, John Miller and Dave Fleming. Miller, John Miller's great. John, John Miller is like is one of the most beautiful, smoothest. He also speaks um, fluent Spanish, so he's very good in Spanish as well. John Miller, I remember from uh, back when ESPN used to do Sunday Night Ball. I saw they did. Yes, with Joe Morgan. Right? John Miller, Joe Morgan. That was such a great booth. That was fantastic. Again, again, such an embarrassment of riches too for for me when I was a kid with with just great announcers and just you know, it's interesting now seeing. I mean, again, I I, I uh, I've shifted my baseball alliances uh, from time to time, and I was uh, an Orioles fan for a few years. Okay. Uh, and uh, I loved uh, I love Gary Thornton, uh, who's a fan, who's fantastic and fun. Sure. Uh, as well, and it has a little little tinge of goofiness, which is is something that's I think missed in some some booths that I listen to. But um, yeah, no, absolutely, it's 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 uh, again, it's it's just listening to the rhythms of the game is still you know a favorite thing of mine. I've been watching uh, older games on YouTube uh, from time to time to kind of get the fix. Uh, have you experienced done anything like that? Any deep dives into that? Uh, no, I watched uh, a couple clips the other day. It's funny; it was before the containment. Um, in the winter, you know, uh, up until uh, March, I've been on the road for, uh, you know, hundreds of days a year and, um, with my, with the group and on my own and with my wife, I've been, uh, you know, travel around the world like all year long and it's basically my job. Mm-hmm. And so late at night, uh, when one was alone, uh, you know, I'd, I'd watch like, like the whole 2014 giant season or whatever, you know, and dive on YouTube and, or watch Charlie Shishikawa's home or over and over, you know, and, uh, yeah. So, but since then, uh, I've got two books and I haven't cracked either. Of them. They're waiting. Cause I'm reading a lot of detective fiction. Now it seems to distract me. Um, I have the, um, the new book on Oscar Charleston and I forget the name of the author cause I just glanced at it. Damn somebody. There's a black bookstore here in Los Angeles and um, a park called Lemert Park called um, SO1. And uh, they specialize, obviously, it's a black bookstore. Uh, I rang them up and my wife wanted some books on Sarah Vaughan and whatnot. And I seen the reviews for the Oscar Charleston book. And um, I've got a Willie Mays book too that John Shea read from the Chronicle that um, my friend Debbie gave me. And Debbie Durst, whose husband is Will Durst, who, and they're giant, Giants fans. They've had season tickets at the new park since it opened. They had season tickets at the old park. It's, I alternate between that and uh, old Letterman clips uh, and Conan clips uh, as just basically trying to feed the two competing uh, 
columns of my my specific nerddom. Right. But uh, like watching the rewatching the UP game uh, with Lasorda and the Expos was the thing that I did uh, semi recently and kind of watched that fun. again. That's a I'll good tell you what I watched the other well, day. Uh, I, I was watched flipping by Classic Baseball Channel and uh, um, they had the fifty two World Series Game Six, Brooklyn's versus Yankees. And I had to watch it because it was a weird truncated version. It must have been, someone must have taped it off a TV or something or filmed a TV. You know what I mean? Because they mm, they yeah. fixed the picture pretty hard and it wasn't filling the screen. The camera work wasn't exactly exhilarating. Um, but on the other hand, there was no ads. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle, Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella. Um Billy Cox, you know, the, the, the Dill Hodges, the whole enchilada. Billy Martin at second, and he was a kid. And it was fascinating to watch it, you know what I mean? They still looked great. They still hit the ball hard. There was a couple of homers, Yogi hit a homer. Uh, and to see Ebbets Field and everything, that, I thought that was really interesting. I, I preferred watching a game from a million years ago, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it looks like a time capsule. When I was a kid, I used to watch, um, they put out, uh, like, the World Series, like, the tapes. Uh, like, what, you know, for every World Series, essentially. And I would go through, we'd go to Blockbuster on, like, Friday night. And those, I'd be like, one of those, like, one other movie. Yeah. Every week. Those are, every week. Those watch those. Obsessed with the, uh, the Reggie, uh, three homer World Series. Oh, yeah. Times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a company called Rare Sports Films. I think they're still around. And I used to call the guy. He would call me. Uh, you know, you, I don't know how I got him to that. I must have ordered something out of a Saber magazine or something. You know, like, you know, you can own the 1964 World Series in its entirety, you know, uh, that was kind of thing. And so I, I remember sending him a check or something, and he wrote me back and called me. I was like, where am I sending this to? So we kind of, over the years, I think I still get a letter from him every once in a while. And it would be like a tip sheet like he used to get for the horses. One side would just have a million games on it. You know what I mean? Like, the Koufax versus Marichal, 1960, you know what I mean? Just random shit. And then there was like whole World Series, then of course football stuff too. I had a manager uh, long ago who also managed Tim Allen and Drew Carey. And uh, he was a Hollywood type. He lived in a big house in Stephanie, had a dog and a gym and everything. And he was a nice enough guy. And he was a huge Orioles fan. And one year, you know, this guy was a millionaire. One year for Christmas, I ordered from Rare Sports Films the 1966 World Series between Baltimore and the Dodgers. You know, and it was like highlights from every game and shit like that. He fucking calls me on Christmas Day, and I can tell he's crying. (laughs) And he goes, what a thoughtful gift. My older brother, my older brother took me to see that World Series in Baltimore, because I knew he grew up in Baltimore, right? And I thought, I got you. All your fancy friends gave you whatever, bottle of wine, million-dollar watch. I bought you a fucking $8 videotape. And you bawled like a child because you got to see Fred Robinson again like he was when you were seven, man. You know? <laughs> it's that thing. It just cuts It cuts through everything. Yeah. My father and I were not uh, always, uh, you know, friendly with each other. And, uh, the one thing that we could talk about without fighting was ball. Yeah, I have, I mean, I have, 
no relationship with my father right now, unfortunately. But before that, uh, yeah, that was always the thing that connected us because he grew up in the Bronx during right. those like seventies like era Yankees. And my grandfather also was uh, on, on my mother's side was a huge uh, Yankees fan, the Maggio era. That's actually how I got my love of baseball. So yeah, it's amazing how I can kind of you know cross over uh, all kinds of barriers. Who? What, what was your? You, you mentioned your father. Is that where your connection to baseball comes? Your your, your appreciation for the history, or was it something or something else? Well, he started taking me to games uh, in the late '60s, and although he came up short in a lot of respects as a dad, he did take me to hundreds of baseball games, literally. Like at one point, he was managing a restaurant. And someone in the restaurant had a connection for tickets or something. Mind you, tickets in those days to sit down front were like $11, man. You know, we're talking the 60s. Um, so we would we would go to hundreds of games. Um, and I saw Mays and McCabe, Marshall, Henry Aaron, um, Johnny Bench, Pete Rose, you know, that whole, how many? Uh, that whole era of ball players. Uh, Tony Perez. And uh, Claude Steen and whatnot. Uh, and uh, that blood, I think it was because, and he said this to me, uh, that his dad didn't care about sports at all. And my dad was a Giants fan, even though he was from Brooklyn. He liked the Giants better for some reason. I don't know. Explain that. And um, he said his dad took him to like one ball game and didn't give a shit. And he wasn't going to do that to me. Like, I like baseball. He liked baseball. We just went all the fucking time. And all through high school, too, even when you usually stop speaking to your parents, when, you know, when you become a solemn teen. Um, my dad and I would go to the ballgame together because we wouldn't fight at the ballgame, you know. We'd fight at home, but we wouldn't fight at the ballgame. Um, uh, so he kind of bled that appreciation into me. And then I started reading on my own, of course, and then I just became a little sick with it. Going back to my sickness, uh, this Oscar Charleston book I'm looking forward to reading. And for several reasons, one, he's a little unsung because he's been dead so long. There wasn't any like primary sources for the book. You know, like he didn't leave any children. So he doesn't have any grandchildren to tell the tales. Um, the writer had to chase it all down, but I interviewed Sam Lacey at the same uh, time as I interviewed Donald Fair, 97. I was doing a baseball documentary for England radio five. And um, Sam Lacey wrote for the Baltimore Afro American for, I don't know, 60 years, 70 years. And uh, he also paged um, Commissioner Landis during World War II. Him and Hilton uh, went to the commissioner's office and said, why aren't you integrating? Why can't you integrate the big leagues? You know, black people were in the service. Black people were uh, uh, had jobs in the States building ships and stuff, you know, notably. That was very famous in the area. Um, and uh, he was like, there's no rule against it, guys. You know, that was always his line. But of course there was. There was an unspoken rule that there wouldn't have any black people. So I interviewed Sam Lacey, and he was 90-something at the time. And I asked him one question, tell me about the Negro Leagues. And he spoke for an hour. And I'll condense it to this part. Afterward, when we had the tape recorder off, I said, can I ask you a couple questions? And he said, sure. And he had a Baltimore accent. You know, that kind of... Mm -hmm. It's almost Southern. There's a Southern pain to it, you know? He said, uh... In the summer, we sold uh, lemonade, and in the winter, consumé. Uh, consumé. So, uh, oh, we knew Walter Johnson. That's how old he was. He, when he was a, when he was a vendor at the park in the twenties, he knew Walter Johnson. 
So, uh, I asked him, who's the best ball player? And he said, Oscar Charleston. And I said, better than Mays. And he looked at me, he was short, and he went, yeah, he was better than Mays. And Oscar Charleston managed, he managed a legendary uh, Grays team in the 30s that had like Satch Page and Josh Gibson on it, uh, Buck Leonard. It was like there's five Hall of Famers in it. He could also apparently rip the cover off a baseball with his bare hands. He was that strong. Wow. And I think it was run, hit, throw, good power, decent arm. I don't think he had the best arm, but he really could do it all, they said. And so I'm interested to read that book because uh, you hear a lot about him at the Negro Museum. But he doesn't quite get the play that obviously Satchel Page or Gibson do. I, uh, yeah, it's uh, high on my list uh, of places to go uh, once this all clears up. I was supposed to. Uh, they're opening up in a week, I think. I think they're opening I, up. Yeah, I think they may have opened up today, actually. I saw on Twitter, I thought uh, they had their first visitor today, actually. Oh, my uh, God. I may, I, may, I may be mistaken. Um, but uh, it's interesting, just, uh, yeah, I was actually supposed to, uh, the plan was for us to move out of where we are right now. Uh, and uh, moved down south to Atlanta, and we were going to go cross country before that because I can work from anywhere since I work from you know, I write and I work from home, uh, and uh, that's all kind of on ice right now. But Kansas City, high uh, on the list of destinations. Kansas City for that, and also for the barbecue, uh, were, were high uh, on the destinations. So um, well, that's what I was going to say is that you're spoiled for barbecue there, and um, the luncheon is always not Brian's, it's the other one. Uh, there's another famous one in Kansas City. It's eluding me right now, but they're always rivals, and there's always the, you know, who's better and all that. I've been to Arthur Bryan's, and it's a very quaint little affair. Uh, not so far from the New League Museum. You could probably hoof it. I think I did. Uh, that that was that neighborhood where the New League Museum was was the absolute epicenter of the Kansas City Black Renaissance, you know, from the 20s all the way through to the 50s and 60s, you know, that was those, there was a million jazz clubs there. The Negro Leagues was started uh, like across the street from the Negro League Museum by Rube Foster. Um, the Kansas City Monarchs were a legendary franchise where Page pitched during the war. Yeah. And they won a couple championships. I think they won a lot, 40, what, 44, 45, Negro League. You know, so it's a, and then also it's the birthplace of um, Charlie Parker and Count Basie. So, the Jazz Museum's attached to the Nicolay Museum, so you get two for one, and then you go down and get some barbecue and whatnot. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty good day to me. <laughs> it's not... The weather in Kansas City is just furious. It's always hot. Like, I don't think I've ever been there when I wasn't just dying of the heat. Uh, they used to have a hot dog stand out in front of the Nicolay Museum. A dude would show up, you know, just like open his little hot dog stand. Because the Jam Theater's across the street where they have the ceremony and everything. And it's, sadly, you know the song Kansas City? I'm going to stand on the corner of 12th Street and Barn and all that. Um, 12th Street and Barn is, is like in the middle of a, a kind of housing thing. So they've kind of put up a sign like where it was. Um, but the Neely Museum's down exactly in that district. I can't remember, like 18th and Barn or something, 15th and Barn. It's great fun. And Everybody dresses up, which is really nice. There's none of this. Nobody comes in cutoffs and flip-flops, man. I'm like, you wear a colorful suit. You're turned away at the door if you're dressed up like Bob Kendrick wears. 
of straw hat and you know. I have seen. Yeah, I've seen. He definitely knows how to dress. He's he's got he's got an amazing uh, taste. I've seen again. I follow him on Twitter and uh, yeah. Dave Parker yeah. called. I mean, Dave Stewart said last year the thing he was the smoothest dressed brother in America. And I was like, did you see the? Did you see the uh, the MLB Network uh, documentary on uh, Parker? They just did it a couple months ago. No, I need to because I got so, to sit with him last year, and I, he signed up ball for me, and we chatted about this and that, and he had told me a couple of stories that were just great, and his wife was couldn't have been kinder to me and my wife, and um, so I'm on stage, and like, you know, he's got MS, and he takes medication, mm-hmm. and he was in very good shape, way thinner than you remember him, of course, but quite tall yeah. still. And so yeah, there was a stick affair occasionally, and uh, on the night, right, and he had to climb a couple of steps to get up to the stage to sit down to interview me. And I went to the edge stage and I put my hand out as if to help him, and he gave me a steely glance. <laughs> and I, I quickly evacuated the premises and went over to him. I thought, you know, you know, mm-mm. and I'm not going to do that. You're Dave Parker and you rule the world, so. Uh, no, I need to see his because, you know, one of the other things that I'm, Bob wouldn't want me to say this, but it's true. Um, some of the players that are in the Hall of Game at the Negro League Museum should really be in the Hall of Fame. And the reason they're not is um, racism of whatever kind of another institutionalized or specific. I would say that Dick Allen and Dave Parker should be in the Hall of Fame as much as Rick Farrell or uh, 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 Fred Lindstrom, or, um, yeah, and you're, you're saying who, and that's exactly what I'm getting at. Um, if you're going to go generation, generationally and pit era against era, I really think you would say that Dave Parker and Dick Allen would be good in this era. They would be good in any era, because they, I mean, crash, I feel like, they crash the ball. Yeah, I feel like the, in the, you know, when we look back in, in 10, 20 years, the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s are going to be really poorly represented uh, because of various mm-hmm. different issues. You know, Bonds, and it's, the fact that Bonds is, in, I mean, I, you know, say what you will about everything, but just representative of the era, I'm sure you have an opinion on that because uh, obviously Barry Bonds is someone who you saw for a great deal of time with, with San Francisco. But uh, to me, I've, I've kind of ch- changed my, my tune on it. Uh, from being kind of, you know, you know, banging a shoe on the desk about steroids and everything to just, you know, everybody's doing it. There wasn't, there weren't rules in place a lot, a lot of the time, and there's always been cheating in baseball, of one shape or another. So it's like it's a bit. I agree with you. Been impressive to keep, you know. It was the best ball player I ever saw. Um, I saw Mays when he was older. Um, the difference was, and I saw him before he got big and when he was big. Uh, by the way, there was no rule against it, as you could say, and the owners didn't do shit. Um, mm-hmm. The owners threw the players under the bus, as they did yeah. in every scandal. Like yeah. the cocaine scandal in the 80s, they didn't get all the players' help or some of them therapy. They uh, basically busted their drug dealer and sent him to jail for 11 years, and all the players, nothing happened to them. It was uh, baseball so fucked up. Anyway, the, uh, the difference with Bones was his approach at the plate. He... I think through sheer dent of work, if the steroids helped him, they helped him. He was in a unique case. So it's hundreds of players are doing them, including Roger Clemens, who's always considered so sacrosanct. And of course, we know about uh, uh, Ken Caminiti and Rafael Palmiero and, you know, all of them. Everybody's doing it. So it's a whatnot. Um, 
they weren't doing what he was doing. They they weren't yeah, it, they weren't batting on higher than average. They weren't drawing that many walks. He's he if your whole point of being steroid monster is to hit taters, all he he would sometimes see one or two strikes in a game, strikes across the plate. The pitchers literally did not throw the ball across the plate to him for the whole most of most of his career, which is a pretty wild thing. And about three years before the end of his career, he hit three seventy two one year, which no one even talks about. Like he hit like a league year, you know, he had a tight cob average. And I mean, I don't know if Reds did it all. He took away the inside part of the plate from the pitcher because his hands were so quick and he held about so low and he had that flexi grip. He didn't he didn't tee off at the bottom of the bat, right? He he held the bat up a little uh, choked up. Game early two thousands, mid two thousands maybe at Dodger Stadium. I was on TV, and Barry was up in the first inning. And Vin Scully, who was never fooled by anything, Barry hit a crash down the right field line. And Vin Scully goes, "That one's going foul." And then he goes, "No, it's not. It's a fair ball, the home run." And I remember thinking, "You fooled Vin Scully. He put that ball on a rope." high in the air, right down the right field line, and it literally curled around the foul ball. And he, he, Vince Cully was like, anyone else would have hit that for a foul. And I think that's where it came from, like that. I've seen a documentary or a little blurb of him in spring, in the middle of his career, and the reporter says, when you get to spring training, are you getting in shape? And he goes, I'm in shape all the time. He goes, I start my training in the winter. So by the time I hit spring training, I'm game fit and I'm already ready to play because I've already been practicing too, running, hitting, throwing. You know, you know, like I didn't, you know, he doesn't come cold with ten extra pounds on him and try yeah. to work it up. Right? He was already a monster before he got there. And then this was the part that I think will blow your mind. He said, "I spend two weeks before I do anything else with my father throwing a bat in practice, and I stand in with not a bat, but I wear my fielder's glove." And I simply catch pitches to see where they're going and where their location is. This is two weeks, every day, all day, having his dad throw him pitches so that he knew where the pitch was, what it looked like. And I, I, he goes, so you've turned it into a defensive position. And he's like, in essence. And then I take the bat up after a couple of weeks. And then I'm a little more centered about what's happening up there. And I don't think I ever heard anyone, anyone, Babe Ruth, uh, Charlie Lau, uh, 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 Ted Williams, Tony Gwynn, who, you know, who do you consider the greatest Molitor? Have you ever heard anyone say that they played the position that way? That they oh, literally stood there for two weeks catching a ball just so they could see what, you know, throw, throw me a curve up and in, throw me a fastball down the way, throw me a knuckle, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, to get that, to weave that, that thinking in, in, into your approach at the start of it, as opposed to going up there with intention uh, to strike uh, is, is, is very interesting. It's interesting that he didn't really last as a hitting coach. Uh, it was so brief uh, when, when he did that, because obviously having that wisdom to pass down, but, I mean, you know, generation gap, personality, conflict, who knows. There was a really good article about it um, that I read a couple months ago about his tenure. As a, he, and it was an interview with him, and they said, well, what was it like? And he's like, well, you know, I can't go in there and, like, change what these guys are doing but i can try to get them to think about like the situation that they're in and maybe their approach a little bit like he's like you can't come in and just like fuck with people's swings and shit and you can't make them do what you did 
and I don't want to be the asshole that comes in and goes like, I hit a million home runs. What are you doing? You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he could, he uh, could do that. You know, his dad was a first base coach on the Giants, and I think they worked together in the offseason on Barry's game. And I saw them both play for the whole of their careers because um, I was eight when Bobby came into the Giants, and he was the most exciting rookie we'd ever had till Buster Posey, I think. And uh, because he could really do it all. Like, Barry was, Barry was uh, not as big as Bobby. Bobby was bigger than him. Uh, taller, I mean, and he had full back shoulders. And all of his aunts, um, all of Bobby's sisters, were also lettered athletes, too. Like, everyone in the family is a monster. Yeah. And Bobby could hit 30 home runs. He stole 30 bases. The difference was his discipline at the play. It was, like, Bobby literally swung at every pitch. Like, he would strike out 150 times and shit. I think he set the record. He's I one, I think so. I think he had it, and then I think Rob Deere. Uh, yeah, I was going to say Deere might have passed him. Yeah, but I mean, he, free swinging doesn't begin to describe his approach at the plate. And he was big, as I say, he was a big dude. And he batted first for a while, and then when Willie got traded, they moved him to the three slot, and he batted third for I think every team he played for after that, the Yankees and uh, the Indians and all that. Uh, have you ever uh, interviewed or, or met uh, Bonds? Talked to him? Oh, no, I haven't. I've never met him, nor I, no, I've just seen him play games. Uh, I, I went to a Dodger game once with my friend Warren, who's no longer with us, and we sat down the left field line so that we could see Bonds. And um, I said, let's not watch the game, let's just watch Bonds. And he went, okay. So we spent the whole game watching Bob, uh, Barry. We watched him every moment he was in left. We watched what he did in between pitches. Then when he was up, we would watch the team bat and whatnot. And... At the beginning of the game, out in left field, as I say, is a vociferous Dodger contingent. I would not wear my hat all the time. Let me put it that way. She didn't want to get <laughs> talked with. And, um, uh, fuck you, Bonds. You know, vindictive. The air was purple mm. for the first inning or two. Then they kind of calmed down a little bit. Then he made a couple plays. Then he hit a dinger. Then a ball came into the outfield for the last hour he got it and he ran over to the stands and he gave it to a little girl in a dodger hat and after that the crowd shut the fuck up <laughs> by the end of the game by the end of the game they gave him a round of applause and this was a dodger stadium in the prime of his career he had a homer against them and i said to warren he has to do that every night in every park he has to win a crowd over that is screaming the most horrible shit at him every night. And he was fun, you know. He didn't act yeah. He heard them booing and shit. Then he went and gave a, a baseball to a little Dodger girl. And that's when the crowd was like, what can they say now? They can't call you well, again, It's the narratives that get, that, you know, yeah. rise up. And I know a lot of people had bad experience with him and he was a bit brusque. Uh, but yeah, it's the, you know, we don't obviously see the the whole portrait of things like that, and there's countless stories um, like that. I do want to, um, I want to wrap up on a question because we you, we talked so much about uh, the Needle Leaf Museum, and I again super want to go there. It's it's a huge goal of mine. Baseball Hall of Fame is a place that I love, uh, and I've been to a few times. I'm curious what your opinion is of it because I definitely think it's 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 flawed. Uh, I, I'm not even just speaking about the approach of who gets in and who doesn't, but just in general as an institution, I feel like it could be better. I'm curious your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I'm not really sure why it's in Cooperstown. I guess so the kind of the creation myth that we stick to. Yeah, the double day thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which no, is I would think it hurts the game. I think it hurts the game. Not having it's, it. It's hard no. to get to, you, man. It really is. It's five yeah. hours for me. Shouldn't it be in um, Chicago or New York or something? Yeah, I think that'd be helpful. I mean, how is Chicago or New York or Boston not the the beginning of the game? Uh, I don't get it at all. Uh, it's cornball. I went there years ago on the same trip we were doing the documentary. We interviewed a couple guys at the hall. They were like corporate squares. Uh, they did have Joe Jackson and Pete Rose's stuff. And I said, well, if they're barred from the hall, why do you have their kicks their stuff? And he was like, well, we still have to display them as ballplayers. And I thought, fair enough. But then when I got to all the plaques and shit, I was bored. And I feel like you should be more excited to be in a museum. Um, the Negro League Museum doesn't have a lot of artifacts, but it has um, a design that grips you the minute you get there because they put chicken wire between you and the field of dreams that you go and see that you eventually end up at at the end of the museum. And on the field are statues of all the great statue page whatnot. Um, and Bob gives a speech at the beginning when you get there on the chicken wires how they separated black people. So to understand what the museum's about, you're presented with that at the beginning. Whereas the Hall of Fame is like this, you know, there's blonde children playing on a lawn and someone's rolling a hoop and someone's got a calliope and it's some sort of fake-ass courier and hives, you know. It's a, bit, it's a bit antiseptic. And also, I mean, there's double fields there. And the town is great. The town is amazing. Yeah, it's really cute. Charming as hell. Uh, and Double Day Field, though, is just this, it just sits there. I, when I was a kid, I jumped the fence and, you know, got on the field and stuff. My father, we almost got caught. Uh, that's a great memory for me, but nobody's ever there. It's just people are just walking around it. It's just kind of let to kind of just be, just kind of sit. And that's a shame. And also, I, the thing that bothers me about the museum is, uh, it's like someone stopped curating with intention after, uh, you know, once they stopped covering the 70s, the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, I just don't feel those eras are represented. Certainly not the, today's game. Certainly not enough to captivate young fans, which is obviously a problem with baseball in general. Um, no kidding, man. They're so stodgy. And the Hall of Fame's so shitty about putting people in. It's just, it's a shame, I think, how stingy they are and how they their biases really work against them. I just get the, the, the BB, what are they what are they called, WA, WA or whatever. Yeah, the, yeah, the baseball writer. There, there's, there's very few, um, even at this late date, the number of women, the number of people of color. It's it's shitty. Um, how many of the baseball writers speak fluent Spanish? You know, a lot of the ballplayers really would be more comfortable talking in Spanish sometimes. They have to learn English. I mean, there's all these things that go into the perceptions of ball players and stuff, you know. Um, yeah, I was looking at a word uh, flow chart yesterday of the way scouts describe players of color versus the way they describe white players. And it's all still there, all that bias. And I think that you're right. It, it, it does reflect that a little. Why wouldn't you celebrate now? Why wouldn't you have uh, 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 Madison, bloody Bumgarner, and Clayton Kershaw, and uh, 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 Mike Trout and, um, you know, all these superb players that are playing now. There really are a lot of great players, you know. We're not cheating or hurting on good players. It's just that baseball's gotten so far out of the psyche, I think. And in the way they really dealt poorly with the cheating, it doesn't help, you know. And then this season. And now this, why not, yeah. Why not just yeah. come out and say, 
we're not going to play this year because it's not safe. We'll pick it up next year. I'm going to pay everybody's check, and I'm going to make a giant donation to, you know, COVID charity. Just do that. I could manage them and get them to have fans. <laughs> Instead of this, it's an inconceivable shit show. I've seen every writer in America take a dump on them this week. Yeah, it's and deserved. <laughs> I am 100% down with Greg Proops running baseball or being the commissioner of baseball. I don't know how we make that happen. I'm sure if you listened, you're, you're on board with it too. Uh, I want to thank Greg Proops for coming on. That was a tremendous conversation. I, I really, really thoroughly enjoyed talking to him uh, about baseball and comedy and, and just everything. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at Greg Proops. Uh, and again, I will drop a link to that, uh, that Zoom comedy show that he's doing, and you can follow him along for other updates. So that's episode two in the books. Episode three will come whenever. I don't really know. Uh, I'm going to try really hard to not do any of these that are lame, so I'm going to really hold out for guests that I'm really stoked to talk to, uh, who I think really kind of you know meet the charge of what I want this to be. Uh, so it may be a little bit infrequent uh, as we get rolling here best thing you can do is follow uh the podcast and subscribe to the podcast on itunes on stitcher uh it's on spotify i asked your mom to write a note about it put it on the fridge it's everywhere you can find the podcast there you can follow me on twitter at j-t-a-b-r-y-s uh and you can check out failedastronaut.com which is a little nook of the internet that i created uh recently that uh houses the podcast and uh it's got stuff from the day job there interviews with some cool comics uh actors uh, essays, reviews, links to all that stuff there. Uh, I, as I said, from the day job, uh, I appreciate that. I think it's good work. It keeps the lights on. Uh, that's all I got right now. I'm going to say bye.